Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you for this place you've entrusted to us. The freedom you've given to us at this point to freely uh, come together to worship you, learn from your word, and grow closer to you. We thank you for your word that it cuts through all the noise and everybody's opinion about everything going on in the world right now or that has been going on and that we can just have the simple truth of God's word and how and how we should view everything and ultimately everything is to bring you glory and we can trust you that you are working your plan out your perfect plan out perfectly the way that you want to we thank you for that peace that 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 offers to us and that spiritual rest now lord i pray your spirit would go forth and and work in our hearts as we take a look at your word uh, that you would work in our hearts and and change something else in our lives today and i pray all these things in jesus name amen Here are some quotes about the point of life from some of the most intelligent and philosophical people who have ever lived. You would think they would know what it is, right? Well-known scientist Albert Einstein said, quote, all religions, arts, and sciences are branches of the same tree. All these aspirations are directed toward ennobling man's life, lifting it from the sphere of mere physical existence and leading the individual towards freedom, end quote. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt is quoted as saying, the purpose of life is to live it, to taste, experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experiences. Author Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, the purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. And Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder, who was born about six years before Jesus' crucifixion, wrote, true glory consists in doing what deserves to be written, in writing what deserves to be read, and in so living as to make the world a happier and better place for our living in it. From purely a human standpoint, all of these quotes seem good. They seem to encapsulate the point of human existence, to live life for all it's worth, and to live to make a difference in the world and make it a better place. In fact, that's what we hear all over the place from all sorts of voices. It's the same message, just repackaged differently. But is this overall message, what we hear about all the time, what God's word says is the point of human existence? What does God's word tell us about God's glory, what that means and what that has to do with us and the point of life? Where we left Jesus and his disciples in this Gospel of John series about a month ago, they were observing and eating the Passover meal they would observe together before Jesus was arrested. He has washed all of their feet 
including those of Judas Iscariot, displaying his humility in direct contrast towards Satan, the epitome of pride, and towards prideful human beings. Then Jesus revealed that one of his disciples would betray him, and not just betray him, but hand him over to evil men to do whatever they wanted to to him. Peter wanted to know who it was, so he knew who to rough up. So he motioned to John, the disciple reclining directly in front of Jesus, with his head directly over and on Jesus' heart to find out. John looked up at Jesus and asked him who it was who would betray him. And Jesus responded by taking a custom of the Passover meal, one that was reserved to display honor towards a guest at the meal, to ironically show that it was Judas Iscariot who was betraying him. Satan immediately entered into Judas, and Judas ran out into the night in order to complete his treachery. As one biblical scholar notes, with Judas gone and Satan right along with him, Jesus now feels this open freedom to simply be upfront, honest, and emboldening towards his other disciples. It's with this fresh openness that Jesus starts giving his beloved disciples deep theological revelation, loving instruction, and bold encouragement that will last all the way through the next three chapters to the end of chapter 17. And that free and open communication is where we're picking up this morning, the very beginning of it. So, if you brought your Bible with you this morning, please turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be picking up in the first couple of verses there. We're only going to be covering a few verses this morning. Uh, so we're going to uh, start in the first two verses of those three. John chapter 13, it's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 32, we read this. Therefore, when he had gone out, so this is Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Like I said, we're only going to be focusing on a few verses this morning, and most of that will be on these two out of the three verses. As one biblical scholar noted, the words glorified and glory, and you can count these up, appear six times in just these two verses. What do they all mean, and what is Jesus getting at with every time he mentions them? To start with, we have the terms Son of Man and God. That's what we read. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. The term God is obviously referencing God the Father. In most cases, the term Son of Man or Sons of Men in the Old Testament always refer to a specific person. Or, or um, I'm sorry, always refers to human beings, mere human beings, whether in general or to a specific person. For instance, Psalm 53, 2 through 3 says about humankind in general, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul repeats this in the book of 
Romans. But that goes flying in the face of everybody who thinks that humanity is inherently good. This flat out says that humanity is not inherently good. Every one of them has turned aside. There is no one who does good, not even one. And together, all that results in is corruption and more and more corruption. And when calling the prophet Ezekiel to go to the people of Israel, God says, Son of man, he's referencing Ezekiel specifically, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Now these are just two examples that in every instance in the Old Testament, the terms son of man or sons of men always refer to mere human beings. Every single instance except one. There is only one occurrence in the entire Old Testament where the term son of man is used for someone who is clearly not simply a human being. When God gives the prophet Daniel several visions of end times events, this is one of them. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. With everything else we know about the Messianic king, who is this clearly referring to, this Son of Man reference? Well, Jesus, but that Messianic king that Jesus will fulfill, right? I'm glad everybody's with me on this so far. Good job. All right. Everybody's awake this morning. This is the only reference here in Daniel chapter 7 using the term son of man to refer to the messianic king. That's on purpose. Why? Why is that done on purpose? So that when the high priest is questioning Jesus during his illegal trial and point blank asks Jesus if he's the prophesied messianic king, again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ? the king, the messianic king, the son of the blessed one, Jesus could unabashedly say, and Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the son of man, same person, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That should look very familiar, those words that are all in caps, because it's a direct quote from what we just read from Daniel 7, and everyone there instantly knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. That's why we read immediately next in Mark, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. They all knew that Jesus was referring to himself as that same exact only once in the entire Jewish scriptures person known as the Son of Man, the prophesied Messianic King. Everybody's still with me so far, right? Okay. Why is all this important? 
Because it's the same meaning of son of man that Jesus uses for himself all throughout the four gospels and specifically here. And why is that important? The description in Daniel is very glorious of the son of man, isn't it? We read that he is given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom, but not just any kingdom, a global kingdom which stretches across the entire world. And people of every ethnicity and nation and language would serve him as the king of this global kingdom. And not only would his kingdom be over the entire face of the planet, but it would last forever. It will not pass away and it will never be destroyed. Now that's a description of glory if there was ever a description of glory, right? But how is the Son of Man glorified? At the moment that Jesus said the words recorded in John 13, 31, the heavens don't suddenly burst open with the vast army of heaven marching out of the skies to lift up Jesus on their shoulders, chop down anyone standing in their way, including whole Roman garrisons of soldiers, build a, glory, a brilliantly glorious palace and throne, and place Jesus upon that. That doesn't happen, does it? No. We know what happens next. And that's what Jesus means when he says that now is that messianic king, son of man, glorified. The glorification of the son of man as the messianic king would not arise from a royal entourage and a heavenly army forcibly putting him on the throne of David. The glorification of the Son of Man as the Messianic King would start with him being arrested, mocked by throwing a purple robe across his shoulders and a cruel crown of thorns shoved down upon his head, humiliated by being blindfolded and screamed at to prophesy while being punched as hard as possible in the face and having his beard ripped out of his face, having his back torn apart by whips of shards of pottery, betrayed by his own people by wanting a murderer thrown back into the streets instead of freeing him, having a splintery heavy cross hurled onto his already ripped apart back and driven through the streets of his own people spitting at and mocking him, then having large nails pounded into his wrists and feet with only the possibility of putting all his weight on those nailed arms and feet to lift himself up to take each breath, all the while while everyone surrounding him once again yelling insults at and humiliating him as much as humanly possible. That was the beginning of Jesus's as the messianic son of man glorification. I went through all of that unspeakably cruelness of the beginning of Jesus's glorification because as we all know, that's not the end of the story. What is also wrapped up in these terms of glorify and glorified is what the Godhead accomplished 
on the third day after that. The Messianic Son of Man took his first post-death breath, took off all his grave clothes, folded them up neatly, hurled away the heavy stone meant to keep regular son of men, grave robbers, out, and went walking out of what was supposed to hold him in darkness till the end of time in his resurrection body. The messianic son of man in his resurrection body meant as a first fruits prototype of what all his disciples and future disciples' bodies would look like and be resurrected and transformed into at his rapture of his church, would display himself to his disciples and well over 500 other people as bodily proof of his resurrection from physical death. He would do this over the course of 40 days, from the day he walked out of his borrowed grave. At the end of these 40 days, he called together his disciples to a mountain in Galilee. He commissioned them to carry forth his gospel message of salvation found only in him, his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, and to pay for their sin, and then ascended back to heaven from where he came about 33 years before that. Born as a baby and laid in a manger because there was no room for him anywhere else. The messianic son of man's entire time on earth, the first time around, was engulfed in humility. And not just humility, but as we saw, the most demoralizing, demeaning, dehumanizing, and crushing form of humility at one point. But as biblical scholarship has pointed out, everything connected to Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension is all wrapped up in Jesus saying in verse 31 of this morning's passage that now and is that prophesied Son of Man glorified. Not only is this ultimate display of humility how the Son of Man is glorified, but in the Son of Man going through all of it in complete and perfect thorough obedience of the Father's will for him and for all of humankind, God the Father is glorified. We read that next. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him in verse 31. Jesus' entire focus during his whole earthly public and private ministry was to glorify God the Father. Way back in John 7, we read and covered this verse said by Jesus, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. See, that was the whole point of Jesus' first advent. Yes, it was to die and rise again for humanity, but all of that was a direct result of Jesus' complete obedience to the Father and purpose of bringing glory to him, not to himself. Through his obedience to and giving glory to the Father, 
ultimately through his obedience all the way up to and through everything he experienced to and on the cross, the point of which we already went through in graphic detail, the Son was glorified. That's what Jesus refers to in verse 32 of this passage. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. In fact, as Jesus describes in verse 32, God the Father would be glorified through his obedience and would therefore glorify him as the Son of God and the Son of Man. What do we read about as to when this would happen? As one biblical scholar pointed out, it would only begin in a mere few hours of Jesus saying these words. And in that way, all this glorification Jesus has been referring to in these verses would begin immediately, as we just read in verse 32. Not only that, but by extension, God the Father was glorified through God the Son's complete obedience to his will and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of death by crucifixion. And because of that, God the Father glorified God the Son somewhat immediately after that crucifixion. In fact, it was as soon as the Sabbath day following Jesus' crucifixion was over, before the next sunrise even happened, that Jesus hurled that stone away and walked out of the tomb, showing himself to the very first witness to his resurrection, a woman who had once had seven demons expelled by her by this Son of Man. That's pretty immediate, if you ask me. There needed to be enough time to pass for everyone to plainly and clearly and scientifically see that Jesus was clearly and physically dead and not just unconscious. So clearly enough that they wrapped him in grave linens and pounds of spices, none of which Jesus would have been able to get out of himself if he was simply too weak and dead looking. But then, as soon as the Sabbath day, on which no one was supposed to do any work, much less anoint dead bodies, was over, even to the very minute it was over, Jesus came back to life and showed himself to the very first person to see him in his resurrection body. Then immediately after Jesus' ascension back to heaven, we see that because of his obedience to and glorification of God the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. We see all of this glorification by God the Son towards God the Father, and therefore the glorification of the Son by the Father in all the steps of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, and of the ascension explained in Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be humanly exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we went through all that graphic detail already. 
For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, to the glory of God the Father. You see how it all connects? All of this glorification by the Son of the Father through His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension is something that Jesus points out His disciples, as mere humans, cannot be a part of. It is for Him and Him alone to experience alone to the glory of his Father. And that's the third verse we're going to read this morning. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. As noted by one biblical scholar, even though rabbis would use the term little children towards their disciples, This use of it is only used by Jesus this one time in all of the Gospels, right here in verse 33. He meant it as the most intimate way it could be used by the teacher towards his disciples. Jesus' one and only time use of this term made such an impact on one of the disciples there that night. Indeed, the same one leaned up against Jesus' chest and the same one who wrote this gospel that he would use it several times in one of his letters, the letter of 1 John. That's how much of an impact these two words made on the Apostle John. Little children. Jesus, in his one and only time use of using this term, meant it to mean as much affection for his disciples as human language could offer. They had accompanied Jesus in every other meaningful experience over the course of these past three years. But what he was about to go through, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, he had to go through by himself. He had already made this declaration to the antagonizing Pharisees twice before, but now in this third time, he was revealing the same truth to those closest to him on this earth. The glory God the Son would bring to God the Father and vice versa was decided long ago from eternity past. And because of that, the fulfillment of all of it would only exist between the two of them as well. This is purely within the relationship between these two members of the Trinitarian Godhead. And it was in direct connection to sin-riddled humanity. This divine plan between the members of the one true God and the fulfillment of it in each other's glorification resulted in the salvation of us sinful, weak, depraved, thoroughly unholy, limited, evil enemies of God. That just blows your mind, doesn't it? 
What is man that you would think of him, O Lord? Right? While sinful man could not accompany the holy Son of God and Son of Man and everything he had to go through in obedience and glorification of God the Father and his perfect plan, what was won through that process transforms us in every way. Scripture tells us that we were once downright enemies of God because of our sin in the face of most holy God. And even though we were enemies of God, the Son of God and Son of Man took our place for our sin in death. And not just any death, but the most excruciatingly torturous, painful, and slow death evil humans could perfect. He paid the payment of death in place for sin that we had no hope of paying ourselves other than simply paying what we owed with the ultimate payment being an eternity spent in hell. And that is what indeed awaits anyone and everyone who doesn't recognize that he or she is a sinner, justly deserving eternal torment in hell, and accepts that Jesus died and rose again to pay for his or her sin, committing to live the rest of his or her life for him as the messianic son of man king, as prophesied in Daniel. But once we do that, all the blessings of being adopted into God's family and of heaven are opened up to us. And we have the hope of an eternity spent with God and in his new heavens and new earth. And we have the peace of knowing that as God's children, his plan for us is perfect. And we can always trust that he is working everything out for good, no matter how confusing or painful our situation is. Because no matter what, and no matter what we experience in this life, at the end of all of it, we simply get to wake up in the presence of Jesus' peace and safety. Always to be by his side and in his care forever. But while we still have breath on this earth, we still have work to do, brothers and sisters. We still have growth to happen in our spiritual lives. While mere and sinful humans could not accompany Jesus in all he had to do and go through in his, in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus does call us to identify with him in his death. Just as he died for our sin, we are called by him to die to our sin. Romans 6 tells us, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We are to identify with the death of Jesus. We are also to identify with and unite with Jesus in his resurrection. 
Paul goes on to write, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are, identify, we are to identify ourselves with his resurrection in this new life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are to consider ourselves dead to the sin that once reigned over us through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we are to consider our lives made new through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That new life transformation also includes a transformation to what our new life's purpose and point is. In the same passage to the Philippian church about Jesus' obedience and glorification of the Father, resulting in the Father glorifying him, we read at the beginning of that passage, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. We already read this part of the passage, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or humanly exploited. But we have to remember what's at the beginning of that. This is the same attitude we are supposed to have that Jesus had. We are called in our new lives through the transformation of the indwelling Holy Spirit to have this same spirit and attitude of humility in our lives in every area, both towards God and because of that, towards our fellow believers. This humility in our standing before God, knowing that it has nothing to do with us, or any self-perceived inherent goodness, and that it's only because of his plan and God the Son's obedience to that plan and glorification of the Father that we have, only, have any hope of salvation directly leads to what our life's point and purpose is. And it should come as no surprise to us that we come full circle to what we started this message with. As followers of Jesus and children of God, bought with the blood of Jesus, our life's point and purpose, if you haven't been paying attention so far, start paying attention now. Our life's point and purpose is the exact same as the point and purpose of Jesus' mission on earth at his first advent. And what is that? Romans 11.36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Who's included in all things? Us. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 3 Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. 
it is the Lord Christ whom you really serve. 2 Corinthians 3. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. There's that word again. So what is the purpose and point of the earthly life of the follower of Jesus? To glorify God with our lives in every way and in every area. To glorify God with our lives. What does that look like? What does that mean? It's to surrender our goals and ambitions to what he wants for us. It's to respond to life's circumstances the way he wants us to. It's not to live for our own happiness or ultimate enjoyment in life or to create something meaningful or even to make the world a better place. It's to live, to live out, and share the gospel message of our King. It's to work the job or earn the education God has given to us as working for and glorifying Him through it not for any human or our own selfish ambition. It's to use our finances to give back to and glorify God with. If we're married, it's to reflect Christ's selfless love for his church towards our spouse in glorification of God's creation of marriage. And it's to not spend our time on what we think we want in life, but to serve the one we glorify serve one another because of that and build up his church. Since our life begins and continues for eternity with God, it should not surprise us that our entire saved life on earth is also meant to glorify God. Just as Jesus knew and picked up his literal cross and lived out the mission of glorifying God the Father, we must know and pick up the cross God has called us to carry and live out the mission of glorifying God. May the Holy Spirit empower all of us to see and live that out the rest of our days as we eagerly await our messianic Son of Man King's return for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Just three verses but they reveal such deep theological meaning to us. It reveals to us not only what your entire point and purpose of your entire earthly ministry, the first advent, was, but it, through that connection to the rest of Scripture, we find out what our entire life's point and purpose, once we've given our lives to Jesus, really is. And it's not to focus or pursue anything for ourselves, it's to glorify you in every way and in every area. We thank you for saving us. We never want to take that for granted. And Lord, empower us through your Holy Spirit to surrender every single part of our lives to serving you and to glorifying you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.